Tonight, a Canadian immigration judge was so moved by a Somali man's confession of brutal violence that he let him into Canada because he was just so honest. It's December 13th, and this is The Ezra LeVan Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon Thanks, consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I can't believe this story, and I also can't believe it actually appeared on Justin Trudeau's CBC State Broadcaster. I guess even a stopped clock is right twice a day. It's this one. Botched handling of gangster refugee claimant exposes Canada's screening weaknesses is the headline. But don't worry, they did find an expert to say it almost never happens and you shouldn't worry. The subheadline says, rare but growing problem needs to be addressed, expert says. Thank God for experts, right? I, I wouldn't know what to think without them telling me what to think. But back to the main story. Let me read a little bit of it. Abdullahi Hashifara's candid confession about his gangster past clearly impressed the Immigration and Refugee Board officer who presided over his first detention hearing on November 1st, 2017. <laughs> Say what? Sure, he was a gangster. Sure, he led a life of violence and crime. Sure, he was on the run from police. But he was just so honest about it. I, I just really felt like we had this close connection. Uh, caught while crossing the border illegally near Emerson, Manitoba, the 27-year-old Somali citizen readily told the Canada Border Services Agency, CBSA, officers he had an extensive criminal record, had been a Somali outlaws gang member in Minneapolis, and was fleeing an arrest warrant for parole violation. Oh, wow. Um, all that's missing were a bunch of, uh, you know, FBI cars speeding behind him with the flashing lights. Uh, a few things here. Um, as you know, as a matter of fact, as a matter of law, as a matter of common sense, if you are in the United States, you are no longer a refugee. So you can't apply for refugee status here in Canada. Same way the other round two, you're safe now. There's no ethnic cleansing in Canada and the United States. No, no one in either of our two countries is in imminent danger because of their race or religion or whatever. That's actually the UN definition of refugee. Not just someone who wants to come here to run away from the cops or something. So it's impossible for this to have been real at all. The safe third party treaty, we just showed it on the screen there, says so. No such thing as a refugee from America or vice versa. But again, he's been in the US for years as a gang member committing crimes. He's being convicted. I don't know why Donald Trump hasn't deported him, given that he's not an American citizen. So he's wanted by cops down there. Who knows? Maybe Trump was trying to deport him. So the only bigger suckers around are, well, us here in Canada. I'll read some more. Farah, however, insisted he had only been a gang member for two years and had quit the criminal life eight years earlier. Yeah, no, he's a drug dealer. He's a gun smuggler. He trafficked for pedophiles effectively kidnapping girls as young as 12 years old, home robberies, stolen property, credit card fraud. But because he was so honest, I mean, he's such an honest child predator. He's such an honest drug dealer, really. He's got a heart of gold, people. 
it's unbelievable. It really is the stuff of comedy if it weren't real 12-year-old girls that he was setting up to be raped, if it weren't real homes he were breaking into. I mean, you, you really have to laugh. This gangster, he was so honest. I, I just think he's so wonderful. Here's a 20-second clip from a kid's movie. A kid's movie that has the statement storyline as a joke. Chuck, share your story with Red. Me, I am the last guy who should be here. Simple speeding ticket. Judge tells me I was going too fast, so I say, Your Honor, <laughs> to be honest, I was. You caught me. I'm not angry, I'm honest. So, shouldn't I be in honesty management class? Because we gotta manage my honesty. We gotta, I don't got a problem with crime, Your Honor. I just, I, I just got too much honesty. We gotta, we gotta handle that. Yeah, Abdullahi Hashifera, his real crime, is that he's just so honest. Now that clip was from a jokey kids movie, but the real joke is Trudeau's Immigration and Refugee Board. And the judge who said that, his name is Trent Cook. What a disgrace he is. He's obviously incompetent for the job. If he had any respect for us, let alone self-respect, he would resign in disgrace, but I can assure you he won't. I mean, Justin Trudeau and Ahmed Hassan themselves say it. There is now a human right to immigrate to Canada for foreigners, especially for young men who are as honest as this thug is. Let me read some more. And again, it really is a miracle that any of this was published on the state broadcaster. It's almost as shocking to me as the story itself. Let me read some more. At the detention hearing, the Board of Services, that's the CBSA, strongly recommended Farah be detained just a few more days until it received his full criminal record from the U.S. But Immigration and Refugee Board member Trent Cook clearly placed more weight on Farah's admission about his background than the agency's suspicion about the degree of his criminality. One of the biggest factors to play in your particular situation is your character, Cook said. In my estimation, you're probably one of the most honest detainees I have ever come across. I love you. Oh, sorry, I added that part. Noting Farah had acted contrary to his own interests by offering up his criminal history and gang ties. What this indicates to me is that you are, based on your character and behavior, very likely to pursue all of your immigration matters in Canada with the same diligence and honesty as you have demonstrated in your interview. Say afterwards, you want to go for a drink or something? I don't know, just spend some alone time, you and me. I don't know, maybe get an apartment together. I'm just going crazy here, I know. I, I made up the last part about getting a drink together, but the rest of it was not made up. That really is what the immigration judge said. Trent Cook is his name. What a public danger he is. Trent Cook, I mean. I mean, obviously, Abdullahi Hashifara is a public danger, too. But Trent Cook let him in. Okay, so that was last year. Uh, what did this outstanding honest crook do when he got in? Let me quote. Seven months later, on June 11, 2018, Edmonton police arrested Farah in a Walmart parking lot in northeast Edmonton, overdosing and beaten badly from two previous fights. He struggled with police and paramedics before becoming unresponsive. Nearby, police found a dumped getaway car that had been used in a string of armed convenience store robberies. Farah became a suspect when a CBSA officer in Winnipeg picked him out of robbery photos taken from security camera footage. Police won't say why Farah is no longer a suspect of the armed robberies. I guess he's just so damn honest. 
But the, the, he remains in the Edmonton Remand Center awaiting deportation to Somalia after exhausting all legal avenues to stay in the country. This is so gross. This is so gross. Now multiply that by what? 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people just walked into Canada across the border. Self-selected thugs. Their very first act, an illegal one. That's sort of your tip-off right there, people. There's a big sign on the border. Stop, but look underneath it. It is illegal to cross the border here. Illegal, illegal, illegal. Their very first act is breaking the law. And you're shocked that they continue to break the law? Oh, but yeah, but he's just so damn honest when he does it. Then again, Justin Trudeau sent out this tweet in January 2017 saying, everyone is welcome regardless. And Justin Trudeau told police and border guards to stop being police and stop guarding the border and it's turned them into a welcome wagon. Seriously, when you see this big welcome center and you see police acting as luggage bellhops, you'd be a sucker not to come in. I see in the newspapers today that Justin Trudeau is paying people who live near these border crossings uh, $25,000 in compensation for turning their private property into a massive refugee camp. Yeah, that's nice. It's actually not nice, actually, it's outrageous, but it, it's a fraction of what the Abdullahi Hashiferas of the world get. As Sheila Gunn-Reed exposed earlier this year, in an access to information document we obtained, these illegal migrants each get $50,000 just for coming in. And that's just the federal side, and that's just in the first year. Add to it the provincial health care and schooling and city homeless shelters and food banks or whatever else they can hoover up. So yeah, 25 grand for the locals, yeah, that's compensation. But if those locals just sort of walked into the states and re-entered refugees, they'd get double the cash. Why don't they do that? All right, back to this insane case of the Somali gangster with the heart of gold. Look at this line. Now, the CBC's trying to spin this a bit, but, but I don't think they succeed. Mount Royal University criminologist and associate professor Kelly Sundberg said Farah clearly slipped through the cracks of the immigration screening process, something he said is becoming more common. Yeah, no, Farah didn't really fall through any cracks. He didn't slip. Uh, he, he was in... Trudeau's immigration court. The border services police warned the judge against him. They asked the judge, please wait till we have all the criminal details from the states. But Trent Cook was in love. Look, you can't fight love. And love at first sight. And this young man's character was just, it shone through, you know what I mean? I just felt warm all over. I just thought, finally, I found the one. So I added that, but what can you say? Love is love. So Trent Cook, Trudeau's immigration refugee, waved him through. That is not slipping through the cracks. You slip through the cracks by accident. This was being deliberately escorted into our country by a judge who fell in love. No one slipped here. The only falling was Trent Cook falling for this guy. He was brought through with an embossed invitation and then this professor, well, the CBC says he's an expert, don't they? So he gives us his expert opinion. He tells us how we should feel about this. Apparently, that's what his expertise is in, feelings. I don't think this case is an indication that we have to curtail our immigration numbers, Sundberg stressed. I think this is a very small percentage of the overall population of non-citizens seeking entry and coming into our country each year. It still requires important attention, but this isn't a cause for public fear or angst. Hey guys, 
Here's a Somali gangster. He sells girls as young as 12 years old into prostitution. Armed robbery, check. Home invasions, check. Convenience store robberies, check. Gun crimes, check. Drug crimes, check. Found in a car with guns wearing bulletproof jackets, check, 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 check. But this isn't a cause for public fear or angst, you bigots. Don't get all bigoty here. Come on. We don't, we don't have to reduce immigration. An expert just told us that. It's all okay, guys. Stop being so Islamophobic and start embracing diversity like Trent Cook. Look, he followed his heart. If he can do it, you can too. Okay, there's one more thing. Farah is obviously Muslim, as 99% of Somalis are, but he knew what to say to game the system. This is my favorite part. He, he pled, he fought for refugee status by saying he was gay. He said he was being persecuted as a gay man back in Somalia. So, guys, I gotta come to Canada. I've been in Minneapolis for years. Yeah, granted. But you see, you gotta let me into Canada because I'm totally gay. I'm super gay, guys. I'm really, really, I totally love guys. So you gotta let me in because back in Somalia, that's what he said. Even though he was in Minnesota, and you know how hard they are on gays in Minnesota. It's just awful there. Now, I know this is gonna shock you. He wasn't really gay. I know, I know, take a minute. Trent Cook is depressed now, but I don't think anyone else is fooled. This drug dealing, gun running, pedophile trafficker, I know it's hard to believe, he lied. I can't believe a gun runner lied. I mean, where's your faith in humanity? He lied about that. Trent Cook believed him, maybe. But here's what police say, and this goes to him being a gay Muslim who needed to be saved by Trudeau. Here's what the police found on his cell phone. The phone also contained Tinder chats, photos of Farah having sex with women, and photos of women in various stages of nudity. There was no evidence of homosexual activity. Farah's asylum claim was based on the contention that as a gay Muslim, he would be killed if he was deported to Somalia, unquote. Yeah, I am so shocked. Um, he lied. I didn't see that one coming. I, I can't believe it either. Because he just had so much honesty. Oh, we were going to send him to honesty management. Trent Cook was, you know, I mean, maybe we could just spend some time. This thug, this thug. How many thugs will we take? How many more thugs will we take? Oh, don't you ask so many questions, you racist, bigot, Islamophobe, sexist, homophobe. I mean, listen to the CBC's expert. Come on, guys. There's nothing to be concerned about here. We totally got this in control because we have a Somali migrant himself as our immigration minister and another cabinet minister, Maryam Monsef, who admits <laughs> to lying on her own refugee application form. She lied about where she was born. So listen, guys, stop your bigoted worrying, you homophobe, Islamophobe. You're both. If you're worried about this, you're both. And sure, he's not really gay, but you're really homophobic. So just listen to what the expert says. We're going to be fine, guys. And like Farah, the CBC wouldn't ever lie to you, would they? Stay with us for more.
Welcome back. Well, as you know, our own Sheila Gunn-Reed is in Katowice, Poland. That is a coal mining town that the Polish government has chosen to host this year's global warming conference for the United Nations. Uh, on the internet, we would call that trolling. We would call that a form of troublemaking and mischief. In fact, Sheila posted a picture the other day of the official bus that brings delegates around the town and it's sponsored by Poland's oil and gas company. I like that style. Well, in addition to Sheila covering the conference, our friend Mark Morano from climatedepot.com is there as he has been at so many conferences. He's really our in-house expert on these matters. We talk to him all the time throughout the year. And he has managed to get himself into the conference that has banned Sheila. And he joins us now via Skype from inside the belly of the beast. Hey, Mark, great to see you again. You're in the middle of it there. Yeah, this is right in the, uh, the heart of the conference center. Uh, maybe I can go find the Canadian delegation and hurl some insults at them for keeping you out. But I'm here with all the other countries. The U.S. is upstairs. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't seen Canada around here yet, but Indonesia and all the countries are here. And everyone's, uh, you know, sort of a it's, a, it's not that exciting of an at atmosphere this year for these delegates. I think there's sort of a, the, the Paris uh, protests and the yellow vest tax revolt, climate tax revolt has put a sort of damper on this whole conference here, and you can sort of feel it in the air. Wow. Um, that's the thing. I, it's funny. I was, I was reading mainstream media coverage of the Paris riots, and we sent our own team there, Jack Buckby and Martina Marcota, right in the middle of it. And it is true there are a variety of reasons people are protesting, but the central issue is the fuel tax, the carbon tax. People think it's a straw that breaks the camel's back. Energy is so expensive anyways, this is just more. The yellow vests that they wear are part of the anti, you know, the war on cars and war on motorcycles movement. So it's the, the protests in France are the largest protests in that country since 1968. Like it, it is a 50-year pro, uh, size protest. Um, and, and of course, Poland is not too far away from France. What are people there saying? Are they trying to blame someone else besides fuel taxes and Emmanuel Macron? What are they saying about yes. that? I mean, I've never seen riots about carbon taxes before. That's incredible. Well, interesting. Here's the two things. Tom Steyer came to this conference, and one of his key spins is that he's welcoming these protests in France. They're trying to co-opt the French climate tax protesters as sort of part of that whole anti-capitalist WTO protests that you see at every every uh, annual, you know, every, every one of those conferences. And that's one of the things they're doing. And they're also saying that saying it's about climate taxes, that the French revolt is like saying the American Revolution was just about the price of tea. They are trying everything they can to diminish it. However, the mainstream media, the Associated Press, the Washington Post, they get it. They're talking about how this conference is asking for more of what got Macron in, tr in trouble. And one of my fun things I've done here last year, if you recall, Ezra, I got to shake hands with Macron and talk to him briefly. And I told him, President Trump is correct on climate change. Well, guess what? A year later, Trump is crowing that he's been right about climate. He pulled out of the UN conference. Macron went all in and is now getting you know, his whole political career and the future of France is at stake as he goes under. So regardless of how they're spinning in here, they are very worried. 
They're calling for more of what got France into trouble. And Macron is quite simply the face of the climate tax failure. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's it's such a good reminder because, you know, we, we saw those protests and they're interesting, but they feel so far away here in North America. Yes. Poland and France are actually fairly close historically for a number of reasons. And geographically, they're not far away from each other. It's just on the other side of Germany from each other. Um, well, tell me a little bit about the actual physical place you're in. It looks like the inside of a, of a modern shopping mall. It looks like there's even a gift shop or something behind you. Tell me physically, because they wouldn't let Sheila Gunn read in. I mean, Sheila is such a sweet lady. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I was just remarking to our team today that in you know the three years she's been with us, she's she's firm, but she's she's actually one of the more polite rebels, so to speak. Mark, um, they wouldn't let her in. How did you get in? Is it because you're going in as an NGO as opposed to a reporter? Maybe, but I mean, look at our history. We had Lord Moncton go and walk into the plenary and talk about the global warming pause as part of a delegation. He didn't belong. We had. Uh, we were arrested by UN climate cops a few years after that. We've had run-in after run-in. I don't know. I think part of it is we're not the media. Uh, and I think that that makes it maybe a little easier because we have our rights as a non-governmental organization. Uh, and we also met with the U.S. delegation this time, and we were front row at their pro-coal, pro-fossil fuel event. And that enraged the international media, the climate deniers looking on appreciatively in the front row. So the United Nations, uh, we have a long history of battling them, but I did do something that maybe Sheila didn't. I had to sign a letter saying I'd been a bad boy and that I wouldn't do it again. So, that, you know, I'm, I'm on uh, double secret probation here at the UN Climate Summit. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We actually haven't done anything wrong. They just, I mean, they, they're very explicit <laughs> in their letter. But I think Sheila's coverage, for, even though she's not allowed to come into the actual meeting rooms, has been excellent. I know she was at your coal event, and, I, and I'm glad yes. you told us about that. Yeah, well, in fact, we met, we went to, we did an event uh, last night in, in cold country, and it was well attended, and we had a local professor speak as well. I told them the greatest threat that Poland faces, they had to deal with uh, Soviet domination for decades before that, the German domination, and the greatest threat to their economic and energy freedom and their sovereignty is now coming from this very conference center with the United Nations agenda and the EU agenda as well. And that got rounds of applause and cheers in the audience. And then I put on a yellow vest in solidarity uh, no pun intended, with, with Poland. Wow. So I think, and we also went out to a local coal mine here out in the country, and we took a whole tour of the coal plant, met with coal executives. They are fully on board with thinking the United Nations is full of bleep, uh, uh, and they're actually so on board with that, that the whole entrance to this conference is a, uh, if you will, a, uh, a memorial to coal, a, a praise of coal. They have coal... Uh, all kinds of displays set up, and it's gotten the environmental activists so upset. Why are they coming to a UN conference to see coal glorified, both by the Polish government and by the Trump administration? So it's been a great week here in Poland. That's what I can say. That You know what? That really is. I mean, I, I used the word earlier, uh, trolling, but that's not trolling. When 80% of your energy comes from coal, when it employs yes. over 100,000 people, when it is reliable energy, unlike the in intermittent, unreliable energy of solar. Um, it, coal is real life. Uh, solar panels is people trying to live the Star Trek fantasy uh, yeah. in, in real life. They're, they're, it's role playing. 
and and I think the polls are in real life. You know, it's, let me ask you this. Uh, you're in the thick of the Global Warming Conference, but <clears throat> this same week, there was another UN conference in Marrakesh, Morocco, about open yes. borders migration. We had a reporter there too. Poland is against that one also. It, it almost looks like the polls, once again, are saving Western civilization from a global threat. They are. And keep in mind, this is why the United Nations is so dangerous. It doesn't matter what your country wants, what's in the best interest of your country, what your people vote for. The UN works on migration, family planning, fertility management, as Al Gore likes to say when it relates to climate, whether it's about your energy use, your transportation, your diet, how much meat you can eat. They want to actually dictate, control and override, override your local country's wishes and, and uh, the people's will. That's why it's so dangerous. Having these conferences side by side should be an eye opener to anyone in the world who thinks the United Nations isn't one of the gravest threats to individual freedom and national sovereignty around the globe. These together prove that over and over every minute, every day, every hour. Wow. Well, I tell you, Mark, I'm so grateful to you. Throughout the year, you give us uh, briefings on uh, global warming schemes and scams, and it's nice to talk to you from Poland. I have one yeah. last question to you. You mentioned you haven't seen the Canadian delegation. That That is amazing because they have 126 people in the entourage. <laughs> I don't know how you can, it's like hiding a blue whale or something. How do you hide 126 people? Maybe they're all out, maybe they're sleeping in, having expensive uh, you know, hotel room service and, and just exploring the, right. the Christmas uh, uh, festivals there in, in Poland. Uh, 126 people, they're, they're I, I mean, that's just so embarrassing, the, the luxurious waste. But you mentioned that there is a U.S. delegation. Now, you went to the coal event with them. I, tell me the, exactly, because I thought Donald Trump had sort of pulled America out. Are these just observers there? Why does America have anyone there? <laughs> Good question. Well, first of all, as Al Gore correctly states, the U.S. will not be out of the Paris Agreement until after the next presidential election in November, late November 2020. That's point one. Point two is Donald Trump. And I think wisely, if you're not going to pull out of the whole framework of the United Nations on climate, he sends a delegation to make sure that if Donald Trump isn't reelected, uh, the next president wants to get us back in, that the U.S. still is protecting our interests. So they're going through the motions here, but with the intent of getting out. It's kind of convoluted, I know, but the best we can do, and it's actually pretty great considering all the other alternatives, really. And so the U.S. delegation actually consists of two different uh, divisions. One of them are the Trump appointees who are great guys. You can talk to them. You can speak freely. They get it. They were appointed by president. They serve at Donald Trump's pleasure. The other group of people here, and it probably is outnumbered significantly, the appointees are the career bureaucrats, State Department who show up. And believe me, these people, these staffers here are not in support of Donald Trump. They were much more at home with President Obama. They would have been much more happy with Hillary Clinton as president. But I was told very delicately by the American staff that the, this, that the career staff here knows how to follow orders and is very pleasant and knows their role. So they're not, as far as I can tell, they're not undermining anything. But there, are, there is that division. Just because they're American, they're representing America doesn't mean they support Donald Trump unless they've been appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Well, listen, it's great to see you inside there. But, you know, uh, I mean, it looks like it, it looks like a huge... Um, 
campus with people from all around the world. <laughs> it, it looks like a, a bit of a party. It looks uh, like a lot of busy work. I'm glad you're inside and I appreciate what you've just told us, but I'm also glad in some ways that instead of Sheila chasing around this delegate or that delegate for this press release or that press release, she's actually freed from the baloney, freed from the BS inside so she can follow her own instincts to report. I think it's great having you inside and Sheila outside. I think we've got the basis. <laughs> Let me tell you what she's missing. They have a big UN buffet in the main food court here that originally the first couple of days was criticized roundly by the environmentalists for very little vegetarian and vegan offerings. By the time I got to this buffet, it was like 75% vegan and all this crap you wouldn't want to touch. Uh, but they actually had a huge thing because they had this whole thing about hamburgers and cow emissions. And meanwhile, they had huge displays and buffet lines of hamburger here. So there's a lot of hypocrisy. Also a lot of hypocrisy about the private jets here. But the good news is, the greatest news out of this conference, and let's talk about the climate exit from UN summit. Donald Trump's leadership here, I believe, has led now to Russia, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, refusing to accept the latest IPCC load of bollocks that came out in October. So there, these countries stood together. In addition to that, Brazil canceled the next UN summit next year in Brazil. Their foreign minister calling it a Marxist hoax. This is great news. The UN has to be worried, very, very worried. Yeah, that, that is a lot of interesting news. Sheila told me about those other countries pulling out yesterday or, or disagreeing yesterday. She didn't tell me about the buffet. You know what? As you can tell, yeah. anyone who, who looks at me, you know, they, they meet me, they look me from toe to, to tip to toe, and they say, you like buffets, I can just tell. If someone said, Ezra, an all-you-can-eat vegan buffet, I think I'd starve. I mean, the idea of an all-you-can-eat vegan buffet is so, that's, that's such an oxymoron, Mark, and I'm so glad that I don't have to uh, face that for lunch. Um, that's just so funny and weird, uh, an all-you-can-eat vegan buffet. I'm glad I've got uh, my own lunch. Um, I'm going to think about that for a while. Mark, it's great to see you. I'm just joking around. There's obviously a lot of serious matters there, but, the, but just the goofiness about opposing meat at a, at a, at a lunch, is, it's just a perfect UN microcosm right there. Mark, great to see you. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you, Ezra. All right, there you have it. Mark Morano, I was joking about the buffet, but everything else we've talked about was quite serious, don't you think? I'm so glad he's there in Katowice, Poland on the inside, and Sheila Gunn-Reed is there too on the outside but she has more better reporting than any journalist who submits to the United Nations. You can see all of Sheila's reports and David's reports from Marrakesh, Morocco at rebelun.com. Well, that's our friend Mark Morano who managed to get inside the conference by signing an apology for hurting the United Nations feelings. That's what he told us. Well, we don't apologize for our point of view. I understand Mark doing so to get inside, but we just can't make those words. We can't say, I'm sorry, United Nations, for being mean to you, because part of being a journalist is being a skeptic and telling the truth about powerful people, even if they say you can't. I totally respect Mark Moran, and as you can see, he is actually telling the truth from within. But Sheila Gunn-Reed was not let in because she's too honest. She joins us now from outside that same building. Hey, Sheila, great to see you again. 
Hey, Ezra, thanks for having me. Now we can see a massive building behind you. Uh, maybe we can pull back and get the, the shot a little wider. Um, that is the main uh, conference uh, center for the global warming meeting, am I right? Yes, that's SpotX Stadium. It's actually built on top of a reclaimed coal mine, which is some top tier trolling by the Polish government. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I follow you on Twitter, of course, and uh, I saw that this morning you popped into a mall just to warm up and to, to do some filing. And there was like a kid's corner, as some malls have, and they were playing a, a kid's cartoon or something, a kid's show uh, with a coal miners marching band. And, and they weren't being mean to the coal miners. They were celebrating them. Is that did I get that right? Yeah, there's a little bit lost in translation when you're watching a Polish cartoon, <laughs> but it's animated so you can sort of tell what's going on. And it was about people who worked in a coal mine and there was a coal miners marching band and they sort of had this big celebration for all the coal miners. And that was a kid's cartoon playing at the mall two blocks over from the United Nations Global Warming Conference. You know, that, that's great. The demonization of working men and women is something that in the West has been so subtle that you don't know. It's like the, the old saying, you know, it's sort of gross when you think about it. If you, if you throw a, a frog into hot water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you put it in cool water and gradually warm it, it'll boil alive. The more I think about that analogy, the, the more I'm repulsed by it. But, but the point is, we don't notice things changing if they happen slowly. And somewhere along the way, men, uh, primarily men, but also women too, but mainly men who work outside, work with their hands, work physically, wear a hard hat, do dangerous jobs, logging, construction, mining, pipelines, truck driving, went from hardworking men that politicians would court to, yeah. well, we're not gonna subsidize you, but we won't be mean to you, to you are destroying the world and we must punish you. Somehow we managed to denormalize the most normal people, and it's sort of a shock when we treat them normally as Poland still does. We don't show any respect to outdoor, hard-working, industrial men in North America anymore. Donald Trump does, but we don't in Canada, do we? No, I mean, we've seen how Rachel Notley treats farmers. <laughs> she treated them as people who were cruel and unusual to their hired help, so much so that she had to bring in Bill 6 legislation that basically put union rules and bankers hours on Alberta's family farms. But we've also seen it in how Justin Trudeau and um, his environment minister speak about Canadian construction workers and oil patch workers. It, they've gone from just from just treating their work as though it's negligible and unimportant to treating them as though they're ruining the world to treating them as though they are predatory deviants when they come into these towns to do the work that Canada needs done. Yeah, you know what, let me uh, play a quick clip here. You made me think of a bizarre comment that Justin Trudeau made when he was in Argentina. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the courage to say something like this in a coal mining town or a construction town. But uh, when he's thousands of miles away swanning for his international media, here he is actually implying that when men come uh, to build something with construction, when they get off the job, they go and rape the locals. Here's a quick clip. 
Uh, you might not say, oh, what does a gender lens have to do with building this new highway or this new uh, pipeline or something? Well, uh, you know, there are gender impacts. When you bring construction workers into a rural area, there are social impacts because uh, they're mostly male construction workers. How are you adjusting and adapting to those? I think Justin Trudeau actually means that. I don't think Trudeau's done a day's work in his life. Uh, actually, he's, the, the, he's two generations away from the last Trudeau who did work for a living. Um, I think that that comment was not scripted. It's just a casual thing he truly believes, and it's probably how they talk all around him. If you look around his inner circle, you've got Catherine McKenna, who's never worked a day in her life. She's been an activist lawyer. You've got Seamus O'Regan, the CTV uh, uh, newsreader, who just compared himself to, to, to yeah. military vets having PTSD. He's got, like, uh, he's got Mariam Monsef, whose only notable achievement was lying in her refugee application to Canada. Um, Bill Morneau had the, uh, won the genetic lottery and inherited a, a billion dollar company from his dad or, uh, and married a billionaire heiress. So there's no one in Justin Trudeau's circle that has actually worked for a living, let alone done physical, manual, outdoor, industrial labor. I don't think Justin Trudeau had ever set foot on a factory floor ever until he started doing photo ops in politics. Well, no, and when he's there, he's not courting the working man. When he goes to these factories, he's courting the union leadership of the people who work there. He's not there to defend the jobs of those people. In fact, he's said that he's going to phase out the jobs of those people as long as those jobs are in oil and gas. He's there courting the support of the union leadership. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Well, um, I feel, I mean, Mark Morano, uh, we just spoke to him, and your comments over the past few days have given me a little flicker of hope because, I mean, Mark yeah. reminds me that Poland, I mean, here in Canada, we think France is so far away and Canada is so vast, but the difference, uh, the geographical and political space between France and Poland is not large. And the anti-fuel tax riots there seem to be resonating across Europe. The fact that po the Polish government is trolling, so to speak, uh, these global warmists, the fact that America had a coal event there, this, it's a little bit of hope that maybe people are breaking away from this cult. And you mentioned the other day that Saudi Arabia and a few other energy producers like Russia, I mean, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Qatar, uh, those are, Saudi Arabia and Russia are the number two and number three oil producers in the world. Qatar is a huge oil and a, and a huge gas producer. If they're saying, yeah, you know what, we're sort of done listening to you, these UN types, maybe people are starting to finally say the emperor has no clothes. You know, I think Donald Trump has really emboldened other countries to come out against the United Nations. You can come out against the United Nations. Nothing happens to you. They get mad. They might want an apology, but there really are no consequences, which is great. It shows that the this big global organization has no teeth. You know, Mark and I were talking yesterday night at his event, and we were talking about the irony of these people who are so Russia collusion deranged, uh, supporting and supporting the idea that Poland should move away from vast, reliable, cheap coal in favor of natural gas or something even cleaner burning. Um, but all that does is enrich Russia. 
because so much of Eastern Europe is reliant on Gazprom for their gas. So as long as Poland is using coal, they aren't enriching Putin. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I remember in a book I wrote called Groundswell, the case for fracking, mm. I studied the international pricing of Gazprom. Gazprom is a massive natural gas company. For a while there, it, it could claim to be the, the largest company in the world in terms of um, assets. Uh, it's not true anymore. Um, there, uh, there's a map, and I'll see if I can dig it up, uh, that was published in Izvestia that showed the different countries uh, Gazprom sold to and the different prices. And there was no rhyme or reason to it, Sheila. Um, there was yeah. no pattern. There was no economic explanation. In fact, the, a pipeline that went through Poland to Germany charged more to the Poles for the gas than it did to Germany. So yeah. how could the same gas from the same Gazprom in the same pipeline cost more in Poland as opposed to if that gas traveled hundreds of kilometers further to Germany? Well, the answer is obvious because the pricing was political. If you succumbed to Russia, if you did Putin a favor, he would chop a billion dollars a year off your gas prices. If you were resistant and independent and you embraced America as Poland has done, it would jack up your prices. And if you really got out of hand, like Ukraine did, Russia would literally cut off the pipe in wintertime to freeze you. So you're so right. Anyone who would say, no, 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 don't dig coal, buy your natural gas from Vladimir Putin, we can trust him. That's true Russian collusion. And I should mention, and I'm almost done my little rant here, Sheila, that Gerhard Schrader, the former chancellor of Germany, upon retiring, joined a Gazprom pipeline board. And so he is, he, that one man, Gerhard Schrader, is a walking, talking Russian collusion machine designed to keep Europe subordinate to Vladimir Putin. You've just awakened in me this memory for how natural gas from Russia enslaves Europe. Forget about, you know, Trump 2016. That's the real Russian conspiracy. Well, yes, uh, coal here in Poland is their freedom from Russian tyranny. It's their defense against, you know, the, the new uh, branded Soviet Union of Vladimir Putin. As long as they have coal and as long as they are using coal, they will always be free of Russian tyranny. And as I look right in front of me, I'm standing right beside the Greenpeace Climate Hub, where they are actively campaigning to put 100,000 Polish coal miners out of work. Vladimir Putin has no better friend than Greenpeace um, in his pursuit of world domination. Yeah. You know, um, it, I have noted where Greenpeace does and does not operate. Obviously, they don't mm -hmm. operate in any OPEC dictatorship because freedom of association, political criticism does not exist in those countries. Fair enough. I wouldn't recommend that Greenpeace go to Saudi Arabia and have a protest. They'd be thrown in prison. But you'd think they'd at least issue a press release from the safety of their headquarters in the Netherlands. You'd think they would at least yeah. maybe put out a, a statement or an ad, but they won't. And that's not because they're worried about their safety. It's just because they are not against oil and gas. They're only against democratic oil and gas from Western countries. The one time Greenpeace protested a Russian Arctic drilling rig, and I don't know how that little rogue operation got going. 
They were thrown in a Russian prison and punished so hard that they never did it again. And by the way, the West really didn't care. So yeah, Greenpeace, you know what? Now, I, I know you're standing with that building behind you. Is it possible to, for you to rotate and have uh, our videographer show us this Greenpeace protest hub that you mentioned? Because I wouldn't mind showing it to our viewers. I'm curious now what it looks like. Sure. Uh, Mr. Videographer, we're going to show Ezra and everybody the climate hub. Okay. Where, uh, yeah. Okay. So, the, yeah. So, so that's. Yeah. So that building. big building. What? Okay. So um, this big building behind us is the train station. Yeah. Um, and in the far corner there, if Efron wouldn't mind showing Ezra where it says climate protection is not a crime and coal in the top corner there. And this is where Greenpeace is headquartered. And this is the only uh, off-site place available to the public because the Polish government has not allocated any public space for any um, off-site demonstrations or anything like that. And point at the sign that said climate hub back, back to the right there we saw that the climate hub uh it's being blocked okay. by the we train. have a train in the way yeah okay so no you'll problem. see i just wanted to uh you, you mentioned the climate hub yeah. and i was curious what that meant and what that looked like so they just set up in this train so. station is what you're saying put it back on the screen for a second there martin let's take a look okay so so it's just basically they're operating out of a out of like the central train station i see there's a coffee shop there yeah. um so it's yeah. it's just sort of uh there's really not a lot going on there. It's just sort of a, a hangout, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's really not end coal, and they're doing this in a coal town. Oops, the train's back. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for uh, ask, thanks for uh, letting me direct your camera in mid interview. Sure. You just uh, <laughs> said climate hub, and I wanted to see what it looks like. It's sort of pitiful. Let's put the camera back on you, and we'll say goodbye, Sheila. There we go. It's a gorgeous Christmas tree that's flashing in the background. Yeah. I really. Oh, like sorry. It. No, no. It's it's a bit of a strobe effect there, but it's so pretty. It's a reminder that Poland has not replaced Christianity with the new cult of environmentalism. They still believe in certain things. Last word to you, Sheila. Uh, you're there for one more day. Uh, give us a hint of what other things you might be talking uh, and covering today and tomorrow. So we ran into our friend Mark Morano this morning. We've got a great little video coming out with him. He paid a visit to the Climate Hub and the folks at Greenpeace. So we'll be showing you exactly how that went and the whole caper. And we caught up with a, another skeptical journalist outside of the event. And so we have an interview with him coming up later on today. Wow, another skeptical journalist. Uh... Yeah, very I, I, exciting. You know, it's uh, two ships passing in the night. Never, I didn't know there was another skeptical yeah. journalist. I can hardly wait to see that. Well, Sheila, thanks again yeah. for joining us and for spending your whole week there away from your family just before Christmas. I understand the sacrifice you're making and your family is making to let you travel the globe for us. You'll be back home by the weekend, thank God. Uh, and just outstanding journalism. It's great to have these live chats thank with you. you, but I want to remind our, our viewers that your produced video segments um, are all at rebelun.com. And I would encourage yeah. folks, if they appreciate the work Sheila's doing, help us cover the uh, plane tickets and hotel 
and meals and other uh, you know, taxi cabs or whatever expenses by going to rebelun.com. That's 100% crowdfunded people because we just, we just refuse to take money from Justin Trudeau. So we rely on you. If you love Sheila as much as I do, I think she's wonderful. I think she's a great reporter. And uh, Sheila, we're all big fans here and I'm gushing, I know, but it's, I'm so glad <laughs> you're there. I think you're the only journalist Canadians can trust on this matter. Uh, so thanks for being there. Well, and thank you and thank everybody at home for taking their hard-earned cash and donating it to us so that I could be here to bring them the other side of the story. Right on. Well, that's exactly what you're doing. That's rebelun.com, folks, for all of Sheila's videos. Take care, my friend. See you later. Thanks, Ezra. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about exercise maple flag being canceled. Jamie writes, wait until Trudeau gets reelected. It will be canceled forever. I think there's a likelihood of that. Um, I hate the fact that this is canceled. I think this is an admission. We're no longer in the front ranks of our NATO and non-NATO allies. We just can't keep up with them. And the reason I showed some of the footage of that F-35 just tearing it up in Israel that we saw uh, this summer is because more and more countries are getting the F-35. That's the next generation. I think they call it a fifth generation fighter plane. Uh, just technically superior to the F-18s. F-18 is great aircraft, but uh, you know, they're, they're 40 years old, almost. We've had them for what, 33, 34 years. Um, you just can't keep doing that and, and keep up. And we're gonna be a year further behind next year and a year further behind after that. So how could we possibly catch up? Um, I don't think Trudeau values the military. In fact, sort of the opposite. I think he despises it, like his father did. So yeah, I think that this is going to be permanently canceled. What do you think? There's going to be some sudden injection of money. Um, are we going to get the F-35s anytime soon? He's made this bizarre decision to buy used F-18s from Australia. It's, just, it's the same plane. <laughs> you're not upgrading, buddy. You're, you're buying the same plane. Um, yeah, and, and if you no longer have the training at CFB, uh, Cold Lake. Why, why do you even need CFB Cold Lake? Uh, Bruce writes on that very point. He says, I suspect that CFB Cold Lake will be made into a wildlife preserve where no development is allowed. That's what the lunatic left wants. You are exactly right. That is exactly what's going to happen. Um, beat your swords into plowshares, people. We, it used to be a place of war and hate. And now it's a place of love and organic farming. But they're not about farming. Sorry, Jesus, what am I saying? It's not going to be any farming allowed. That's way too, you know, rape the earth. Farmers are right wing. It's going to be a nature preserve. Absolutely, that's what's going to happen. On my interview with Sheila Gunn-Reed yesterday, we talked to her again today, but uh, yesterday Ron writes, what a bummer, Brazil won't host the next global warming conference. How about Venezuela? Yeah, you know, um, wherever it is, we're going to send Sheila. And it probably won't be in Venezuela, um, but we'll send her because I think she does important work and our viewers like it. I think it's very exciting that Jair Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, is totally the anti-Chavez. He's conservative, he's pro-Trump, he's pro-Israel, he's anti-global warming extremism. He's great. Um, as to Venezuela, it's funny, I saw this stat, I think I referred to it um, 
He maybe didn't mention it. North Dakota, little state, abuts uh, the northern border. It borders um, Saskatchewan, and I, I can't visualize the map in my mind. I think it touches the bottom of uh, Manitoba also. North Dakota, small state, one of the small states, about 800,000 citizens, pretty small. Great place, great place. Um, they now produce more oil than Venezuela every day. Isn't that amazing? Because that's freedom. Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world, more than Saudi Arabia, but the collapse of socialism, state-run economy, Hugo Chavez's successor, Nicolas Maduro, they are producing less than that teeny tiny state of North Dakota. So in a way, Venezuela is reducing their carbon footprint. Oh, also they're starving their people, as you probably know. The average Venezuelan has lost, I think it's 18 pounds. Now you look at a fatso like me and you say, Ezra, you could stand to lose 18 pounds too. Sure, but they're losing 18 pounds not because they are exercising or choosing to eat smart. They're losing 18 pounds because they are being malnourished and literally starving in what was once the wealthiest, uh, it was one of the wealthiest countries one of the wealthier countries of the world, of the world. In fact, I think there was a moment where Venezuela was actually on par with Canada in wealth. Yeah, so Venezuela is exactly what the globalists want. Socialist, check. Control of the media, check. Um, reducing carbon footprint, yes. In every way, it is the predictable outcome of global socialism. Well, that's our show for today. What do you think about that Immigration and Refugee Board judge? When someone confesses a crime spree to you, you can say, wow, that's really candid. But then you say, so I am on guard. I'm sort of on duty here protecting Canada. You just confessed to being a gangbanger. You shouldn't even come here as refugees anyways because you're from Minneapolis. You're not in Somalia anymore. So thank you for your honesty. But the answer is no. I mean, I will accept that this gangster was surprisingly candid, although it turns out he didn't reveal everything. I'll accept that. I'll accept that it was quite strange. But the answer when a crook, a criminal, a violent thug says, I'm a violent thug. Yeah, I could tell by the MS-13 tattoo you had. This guy didn't have tattoos. But if someone were to say, yeah, I'm a murderer, you don't say, you're so honest, man. Come on in. I love you. You don't say that. You keep them out. Trent Cook let him in. That's the problem. All right, enough of that. Until tomorrow, guys. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.